Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. into this Mexican restaurant, the whole place was ablaze. We asked Jimmy originally to take the place of Eric Clapton, and he recommended Jeff, who, who none of us had ever heard of. into this dazed and confused riff, you know, doom, doom, playing with two folk guitars. And I thought, hey, this is a good riff. And I happened to be there just with Jeff Beck, and um, they were in a bit of a quandary what to do, you know. Hi, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. Today, we have an interesting combination. First, let me introduce my co-host, Anita Gevinson. Hi. Hi, Denny. Everybody knows we're huge, huge Yardbird fans. (laughs) Yes, we are. Excuse me. It was great to talk with David French, the author of Heartful of Soul, about Keith Relf, the founder and lead vocalist of the Yardbirds. And uh, you talked to Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top about his new album. And we've got that interview for you, too. Yes, so uh, we're going to discuss the Yardbirds, uh, and, and sometime in the future we'll do like a more extended version, but for this show, I, I just wanted to give some highlights, and since we had the author on and we were able to ask questions, I thought this would be uh, uh, appropriate. But I want to play the Billy Gibbons interview first. Uh, he has a new solo album out. It's called Hardware. Now, Billy also was uh, featured in the recent concert that Mick Fleetwood organized, as a tribute to Peter Green, founder of Fleetwood Mac. Peter played guitar and wrote the majority of the group's material, including Black Magic Woman, later covered by Santana. So I knew Billy was a Yardbirds fan, and he mentions a few of their members and figures we should put these two parts together. Um, Hey, it's our show. We do what we want, right? Well, I've been watching those videos that Billy put out. Uh, I love his new tune, My Lucky Card, uh, clocking in at two minutes and 38 seconds, <laughs> leaves, <laughs> you know, leaves you wanting more. Mm-hmm. And they filmed all these videos and uh, where they recorded the album, uh, which is uh, out in Pioneer Town, California. Uh, I think it just describes itself. And uh, they did it in black and white. It kind of reminded me visually of uh, U2's Joshua Tree stuff. Mm-hmm. That reminded me of the Robbie Robertson Somewhere Down the Lazy River Mm-hmm. Odin, Sam Lanis, which I mean, that was just, uh, you know, nobody can forget that video. And Billy narrates some of the videos about the making of the album. And it's he's really I mean, his voice is so good. So, yeah, I love this album. I think it's the best thing uh, possibly that he ever did. The desert dust fills your eyes. The rattlesnake shape takes you by surprise. The coyotes sing in the calm of night. The cactus water goes down like fire. That's a little taste of uh, the new Billy Gibbons album. And here's our interview with Billy. All right, let's see. 
<laughs> as a familiar voice. Uh, how's how's the audio? Sounds good. Do we sound okay to you? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. In, at least we're speaking English. Yesterday, I had a <laughs> I had a funny story about uh, covering the uh, Augie Meyer, the famous Augie Meyer song hey baby k paso right the texas tornadoes can can we talk about the hardware just for as uh, a, sure that's what i that's what i wanted to start with hardware it's kind oh, of a brief, a brief opener please tell me what's going on with this thing well at the conclusion of I, i'll come back this is not in order i'll come back okay. to uh illuminate the origins but okay uh working backwards from the uh completion date i should say <laughs> we were in the control room and we decided to play dj while the engineers were buttoning up and uh when it came my turn we were we were it was kind of a uh, round roundabout matt sorum got to play a favorite song then it went to austin hanks then it went to one of the engineers and then uh i decided to throw Hey Baby K Paso in the mix, the entertaining aspect of that uh, spin was the fact that I had the the original version from a 45 RPM single. This predated the Sir Douglas Quintet and it predated the Texas Tornadoes. This was the, the very original. And uh, Everybody was stumped when it came to the second verse. And uh, despite my efforts to educate the newcomers to Tex-Mex slang, it's not, it's not English, it's not Spanish, and it's not Spanglish. It's <laughs> slanguish, <laughs> which is slang Spanglish. Anyway, they, 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 they became agitated and they said, well, you know, Augie, call him up, which we did. And I said, Augie, I said, we're, we're, we're stumped on the second verse of Hey Babe of K Paso. And he said, what do you think it means? And I said, well, we, we can't even pronounce it yet. <laughs> and he, he had a big laugh and he said, uh, he said, well, he said, I'll reveal it if you, uh, if you go back in the studio, light the fuse and, and do recut it, cut, do it. I said, well, we need another song with your permission. We'd like to do it. And he said, okay, the second verse is fake Spanish. He said, we needed a word that rhymed with San Antonio and we did, we couldn't speak enough Spanish. So we just made up something. <laughs> I said, well, if we recut it, we're going to make up something as well. He goes, have at it. <laughs> So that's how it came about. So that's that's my Hey Baby K So High moment. They were a great band. I, I actually saw them, I think, when they in 1990 in Austin. They played the South by Southwest. I saw them there. Oh man, what great a, band. What a lineup. Yeah. You know, um, in addition to that story, I just uh I'll have to send you a snapshot taken of uh it was me and Augie. I was uh, in attendance for the presentation of his Lifetime Achievement Award down in San Antonio last week. Big, splashy affair. The mayor, governor, uh, 
chief judge, one of the big Texas Ranger guys, and a slew of musicians, which included Ray Benson, Johnny Nicholas, Gary P. Nunn. I mean, it was, Augie thought uh, five or 10 people would show up. There was, there was a hotel ballroom next to the airport packed. 500 people showed up. Wow. Really, really cool. So you have uh, you have uh, a couple of videos from this uh, new album already, right? On your so YouTube ch- on your YouTube channel. What else are you going to cut? Well, let's see. The first crack out of the box was uh, West Coast Junkie, right? And uh, speaking of how the album unfolded, that was the first track. Um, I should I should begin by. Uh, illuminating the ignition point. It was a phone call from Matt Sorum, my, my good buddy on the, with the big backbeat. Uh, he said, man, this was back in June. And he said, I am ready to make some loud noise. And I said, yeah, who isn't? And he said, well, I found a, there, there's a studio out near Joshua tree. Well, I suspected it was the Rancho de la Luna. I'd worked there with Queens of the stone age. He said, no, no, no. He said, it's, it's just across the highway. Uh, he didn't tell me it was 20 miles across the highway, <laughs> which was, you know, out in the middle of, well, you got uh, desert sand, a lot of rock, some cactus, and a few rattlesnakes, and that's it. But uh, I got curious, and I said, well, give me a half an hour. I'll ride out there with you. He said, Austin's here. He said, Let's make it a trio. We'll make it a field trip. The prospected 30-minute visit, we walked in and we didn't leave for three months. But the good news is the studio was well-appointed, and over in the corner I discovered an early Fender Jazzmaster guitar and a Fender reverb tank. Plugged it up, and away we go. Uh, Surf City, here we were. (laughs) <laughs> that Fender reverb hasn't been heard on record since Jimi Hendrix said, you shall never hear surf music again. <laughs> but we were back and, and uh, we were having a blast. That's really uh, the story of, of the entire 90 days of making racket out there in the middle of nowhere. The, uh, the regimen was, Up early in the morning, making the 20-mile trek back into the little town, Yucca Valley. And we discovered uh, the closest point of civilization happened to be a Mexican restaurant. And I was telling the story of uh, one of the song titles, uh, She's on Fire. (laughs) And uh, as we walked in this Mexican restaurant, the whole place was ablaze. It was on fire. And the, there was a young girl. She, she was the owner. She was the cook. She was the bookkeeper. She was like the everything. She poked her head around the corner, and she's waving a blanket. She goes, I'm not burning up your breakfast. I'm going to have this out in a minute, <laughs> so, which she did, fortunately. And, and I don't know. We, we left uh, uh, rather satisfied. It was a the food was great, and we had a song title. So, <laughs> so, so that's your smoke on the water. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> smoke on the jalapenos. <laughs> 
So what do you, I know you, I can't hold you anything because nobody knows what's going to go on, but what are your, what are your plans for touring with uh, the band, this band and with ZZ Top? And, and I know there's a tribute coming up, which we want to talk about in a minute. Okay. Um, that's a good question. I think that uh, we stand in line with the many. I know that the bands are ready to go to work as well as the managers want their groups uh, out there. Even the booking agents are uh, rubbing hands together in hopes that uh, the venues open the doors. Uh, things are thawing out slightly. Uh, uh, I left Las Vegas. Uh, I made a trip down San Antonio, and uh, Ms. Gilligan is is traveling with me, and we decided to head south and then uh, just to get some fresh air. And when we returned, we made a detour in Austin. And there's a joint that has reopened. It's an it's an ancient honky-tonk that it had closed down. It had gotten a bit dangerous. And then somebody decided to pick up the, the, the rental. And as an experiment, they started opening the doors. And uh, I, got, I actually got to uh, uh, catch Mike Flanagan, he was on uh, Hammond B3, of course. Sue Foley was playing guitar in front of Chris Layton on drums. And the place was was jumping. I mean, it wasn't packed, but uh, it was fairly relaxed, you know. It, right. it was, I, I, I considered it an uplifting moment to, you know, kind of pretending we were, like, living the life of normalcy. So let me just uh, tell me about this uh, tribute concert that's coming up. What is it? May in May, right? At the uh, Grand Old Opry. Yeah. Middle of May uh, rehearsal on 15 and uh, light the fuse on 16. All right. Now, you know, we want you to tell us all, who all these special guest stars that nobody else knows about. You want to tell us? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, it was intended to be uh, a bit of a surprise, but the cat got let out of the bag and, uh, I said, gee, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of flattered. A, a tribute to BFG. I said, uh, let me remind you guys something. Uh, most of these tributes are for dead guys. I said, I'll be happy to get up and play a couple numbers. But uh, and they said, no, 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 no. He said, this is going to be a night of a night of celebration. I said, okay, I got it. But they've got. Uh, Oh, Brad Paisley threw his hat in the ring. Lucinda Williams, um, Tim Montana, Travis Tritt, Eric Church, uh, uh, Jimmy Vaughn, even uh, <laughs> my nemesis on the guitar, Guthrie Trap. That guy will make you pull your hair out. He, most guys can learn how to play the sides off a guitar. He. He plays both ends and the sides off a guitar. <laughs> this guy is something else. I mean, Guthrie Trap. It's a perfect name for uh, a chicken picking, you know, guitar freak. He does. He really does everything. What do you What do you like about playing at the Grand Old Opry? You played there before. Yeah, and I don't know if you've been there, but uh, I have been. Yeah. Uh, well, then you know m most folks. They get an education on many levels, uh, one of the most important being the age, the, the actual structure is so old 
and having had music blasting through the four walls for so long, all of those beams, timbers, and rafters have settled into place. It's a it's a giant speaker box. It just resonates with such uh, elegance, sound wise. Um, it, there's there's uh, <laughs> it's like Flanagan. Uh, I I had him uh, f- phone in a part for this "Hey Baby" K-pop, so which which begs another uh, uh, interesting aspect. Uh, Augie Myers said, "Listen, if you're gonna," he said, "if you're gonna do "Hey Baby" K-pop," so he said, "Where are you?" I said, "We're out in California." He said, "Well, so believe it or not, I've got a friend that's driving out there." He said, "I'm gonna put my original Vox Continental organ." which I've had since 1965. It was, it was the first box continental organ imported into the U S. So yeah, I said, okay. Uh, and I got Flanagan to, to perform on it. Uh, as Flanagan says, you can't hit a wrong note on a B three and inside the Ryman auditorium, you can't play a wrong note. It just, it sounds that good. Anyway, we're looking forward to it. It ought to be a, ought to be a splendid gathering. So, but how did you get involved with the uh, with the Peter Green tribute that just uh, came out? Oh, long-standing uh, alliance with uh, the original four guys: uh, Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer, John McVie, and Mac Fleetwood. Who, you know, they constituted that original four-piece blues group known as. Fleetwood Mac. And uh, I, I think it was the brainchild of Mick Fleetwood. His dream had been uh, uh, cooking up this possibility of go- going back to the roots. And when he, when he rang up and he said, Hey man, he said, uh, got any interest in uh, joining? He said, I've got a grand lineup uh, and much to my liking. Uh, of course, this was the end of February before the curtain had dropped. Mm. Uh, we'd have to do a little sleuthing to determine, but I suspect it might have been one of the last large gatherings for live music at that particular time. So we uh, packed up the guitar and headed over to London, and it turned out to be uh, it turned out to be quite a splashy affair. It was it it was something else. Um, thank goodness we 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 came over there with uh, a six day advance to the one rehearsal day, and uh, so it said, "Gee whiz!" He said, "I said no, no." I said, uh, uh, "Gilligan, she wanted to to tag along, and uh, we like kind of." knocking around London, I said, but most importantly, it took a full five days to unravel and memorize the insanity behind the lyrics of Green Monolishi. <laughs> you've heard, I know you've heard it a million times, as as did I. But when it came time to remembering the words, it goes this way, and it was in, it was really a, it was a challenge. I was sitting on pins and needles through the whole performance. Let me ask you something. What, what do you think of, uh, what did you think of Peter Green as a guitar player? Because you've seen some of the best in the world. Yeah. Um, 
it, it's fair to say, um, and I'm glad you brought that up. You obviously uh, probably can relate to um, my recollection uh, goes uh, immediately to the British invasion when you, you had Clapton, Mick Taylor, Mick Abrams, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, you know, this conglomeration of guys that had embraced this great American art form called the blues. And uh, they cranked it up. They put a little extra heat behind it. But once they, uh, once they peeled the onion, they, they were teaching, they rescued this, this kind of evaporating art form. Did you ever get a chance to play with Peter? Not perform. No, uh, I did meet him in 1968. I was 18 uh, at the time, and and uh, there there was a uh, the Peter Green uh, Fleetwood Mac was joined with Savoy Brown, and uh, it might have been. You'll have to correct me. Chicken Shack, maybe. Yes, there was there was a four English blues group touring outfit that spun through town. Me and a couple of guys went down and we were dead set on meeting the, the Fleetwood Mac guys. And we tiptoed backstage and that really, uh, that I, I had, you know, this pre ZZ top, I was with the moving sidewalks at the time. Right. And, uh, we had, we had wrapped up, a, uh, when we, when we got invited to, uh, team up with the Jimi Hendrix experience. Uh, I used that as the calling card. I said, yeah, I'm a friend of Jimi Hendrix. He wanted me to go say hi to Fleetwood Mac. Oh yeah. <laughs> you guys can come backstage. So, but, uh, you did, you opened, you opened for Hendrix for a few shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, another, that was another interesting, uh, foray into the, the, that, that, I call it the the, the great American art form, the the blues colliding with with the UK. I mean, who would have thought? Mm. I can only tell you my a real quick my Peter Green story, which I think you'll appreciate. Is I was interviewing BB King once, and I said, "So of all these British uh, guitar players, who's the real deal?" And I was expecting him to say Clapton or Beck or something like. He leans over and he goes, "Peter Green is the real deal." Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And he, well, in my humble opinion, uh, he, he really had it together. BB King, he's, he's known everybody, not most folks know, Mm -hmm. uh, he had named his guitar Lucille and that famous story. Um, one of the later incarnations of that model guitar had a rotary switch that allowed uh, a selection to throw the pickups out of phase, hmm. which gave it a very distinctive sound. And Peter Green followed suit quite by accident, as the story goes. His his Les Paul fell into disrepair, and uh, when he took it in for uh, a fix-up, the uh, the attending uh, guy that that uh, he accidentally did something to to throw the pickups out of phase, and all of a sudden, he was doing the BB King thing, just like nobody else could. 
Well, Billy, I could sit here and talk to you all afternoon, but I'm getting signals. So I know you got a busy day ahead of you, but I want to wish you a lot of luck uh, with this album. Hope to see you on the road. And yes, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks. You know, my fuse is now lit with uh, the remainder of the day. I'm going to be spinning Peter Green wax all day. Uh, give me any excuse to go there. That's that's uh, that's always a high card. Yeah, when the uh, when the curtain rises, come on out, make yourself known, and uh, we'll we'll take it from there. Okay, that was great. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Thank you. Goodbye. And speaking of B.B. King, the name ZZ Top was actually Billy's idea. He looked around his apartment and there were these concert posters on the wall. One was from B.B. King. One was from a blues singer called ZZ Hill. And he thought about putting it together and making it ZZ King. But at the last minute, he changed his mind and he chose ZZ Top. And, you know, it's funny because uh, they were all over MTV. You couldn't turn on MTV, but not the obvious choice to be video darlings. Do you agree? I I, absolutely. But, you know, they were it it looked like they were made for MTV. Well, they yeah, they remade it to fit them, (laughs) I think. (laughs) And I know she had me back again. Well, I will never make her sad. Now, to set things up for the David French interview, which you're about to hear, and of course, this is the the biography of Keith Relf, the founding member and lead singer from the Yardbirds, I want to start with a clip from Keith, and this is from one of their BBC Live sessions. So you just you can get a feel for uh, what he was like. I want to take this opportunity to talk to you very briefly. Okay. We mentioned publicity before. Why? What's been the problem in getting some publicity for you as some of the other groups have been having? Well, actually, you know, the Yardbirds tend to sort of uh, uh, concentrate more on the music making, you know, and uh, we've entrusted ourselves to certain managements which haven't been so good over the uh, last period of years, you know. So uh, we have got a new management scene now which will uh, mm-hmm. take, take care of it now. Marvelous. Can you tell us a little bit about the changes in the group? Uh, yeah, well, Jeff Beck, our lead guitarist that we had up to about four months ago, he left us, and uh, we're going to remain as four now, you know, with Jimmy Page taking the lead. We're not going to have a rhythm guitarist, though. And uh, plans for the near future? Where will you be traveling? Uh, to America, actually. We uh, just came back from Australia, and we're going off to America soon, you know. How long will you be there? Uh, about six weeks. What are you going to do next? Over, under, sideways, down. Yeah, um, over, under, sideways, down, the Yardbirds! Okay, we're going to go into our uh, first part of the interview with David French, and I thought we'd set things up by taking you back to 1963-64 when the Yardbirds were uh, recording their first album, which was recorded live, called Five Live Yardbirds, and this will give you an idea of what you're about to see if you happen to be in the room, and then we'll go right to the first part of our interview with David French. Good evening, and welcome, and now it is time for Burdenrising. Yardmerizing, in fact, most blues wedding Yardbirds. The singer and harp, Keith Rowe. 
the book's been out what about six months a year yeah that's right it came out in july okay and how did you what made you do it how'd you get involved other than being a yardbird fan and realizing that there wasn't a book on keith uh that is that's kind of the the, the crux of it. I, I spent uh, a number of years uh, working as a jazz journalist, uh, writing for Downbeat, Jazz Times, the LA Times, different outlets, uh, and uh, so had had kind of developed this set of skills as a music writer and became very aware uh, while I was writing about jazz that there are some stories of musicians that just don't get told because they don't get written about. And, you know, as the generation, each generation of musicians ages, if nobody asks uh, for those stories, they don't get written down. And I was, I was very aware the, in uh, 2016, the 40th anniversary of Keith's death uh, came around and I've been a huge Yardbirds fan uh, in high school and college and kind of always assumed I, I, I was a huge Keith Rail fan. Uh, for me, he had this very special quality uh, that really he was the perfect singer for that band. He had this kind of like melancholic voice, but he could also do this kind of like adenoidal uh sneering hipster uh shout that was very exciting um and i'd always really identified with him and then you know when when the 40th anniversary came around i realized that uh there was no more information on him available really than there had been when i was in high school you know i thought that was really a shame because i i thought he you know the yardbirds uh there's been so much attention paid to the guitarists over the years and uh, I felt like Keith really his was an important story that hadn't been told. So I really wanted to, I, I knew that I had the skills to do it and it was just a matter of kind of tracking down people and talking to them and uh, trying to get his story before it was too late. So uh, what did you find out when you were, when you were starting? I think uh, probably the most important connection uh, connections were speaking Jim McCarty, uh, the drummer for the Yardbirds, was and and has consistently been uh, there for countless retellings of the Yardbirds' history, and was was just so generous with his time, and uh, you know really gave me a foundational understanding of Keith. Uh, as did speaking with Keith's widow, April Menino, um, who you know lived. Keith Keith had some hard years and uh April was there for those years with him and uh you know the family Keith was a very private person and uh the family's always been very private so it was uh a responsibility that I I felt very much to kind of honor uh Keith and re- approach the subject with respect and try and really get the story right so I think those two were really foundational. Uh, speaking also with Louis Sanamo, who was the bassist that played with Keith 
uh, in the two groups that he really invested time in after the Ardbirds, uh, Renaissance and Armageddon. Louis is uh, an amazing musician and an amazing person and also a very spiritual uh, a very spiritual guy. And he and Keith really uh, bonded a lot over Eastern religion and uh, the deeper uh, things in life. And so Louis was able to really provide a, a remarkable window into uh, some of the things that Keith was involved in. Was the public aware? Were their fans aware? Because I know I wasn't of uh, Keith's physical problems, his medical problems, his severe asthma. Did people know about that? Or or was that sort of, did you know growing up? Like I, I had no clue about this guy. I think to some extent there's there has always been this myth of uh, the Yardbirds having a one lunged uh, singer, uh, which wasn't wasn't quite true. He he did suffer a lung collapse uh, in 1964 on stage uh, that that almost killed him. But the lung was reinflated. He 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 had severe asthma. Uh, from the time he was a childhood a child, he almost died when he was four. He he. Many people that I spoke with recall seeing Keith on stage with an inhaler, you know, between songs, pulling the harmonica away and really pumping this uh, little rubber ball to kind of get uh, steroids into his lungs. And yet he chose to be the singer and the harmonica player. And and he. Smoked, you know, he rolled his own cigarettes and smoked unfiltered cigarettes, multiple packs a day. He was prone to depression. He had, he clearly had some kind of self-destructive streak to him that, you know, even, even when he should have done everything to protect his, his health, he, he really just went hard um, on smoking and drinking. So I found this clip from Chris Drea, a founding member, and uh, talks about an incident involving Keith that led to bass player Paul Samuel Smith leaving the band and Jimmy Page coming in uh, on bass before eventually Chris switched to bass and Jimmy went to guitar. And it'll give you a little idea of what he was talking about as far as what Keith was up to at the time. So here it is, Chris Drea. By that time, we'd been playing sort of, you know, so many nights a week and everybody was getting a bit brain dead. Um, Keith was drinking too much and everything was getting a little out of control. And uh, we went up to, uh, I can't remember if it was Cambridge or Oxford, one of the universities, to do a, a show that employed us. And uh, they had the Poppers and the Mummers and, you know, Graham Nash and all sorts of people there. And they had great catering. Big mistake for musicians. And it all got a bit out of hand. And Jeff had brought up Jimmy on that day. You know, he just sort of invited him as a guest. And uh, poor old Keith uh, got a bit bit under the weather and um, started forgetting lyrics and doing raspberries down the microphone and you know we had to tie him up I think at one point actually to keep him upright. Jimmy loved it. Paul Samuel Smith who uh, you know was a bit of a square peg, uh, another genius I mean he was a brilliant producer but um, he was a bit of a square peg in the rock and roll hole of things you know and he kind of quit at that point. He was a little bit uh, too, too much rock and roll behavior uh, and Jimmy jumped in and said, oh, well, you know, can I join? <laughs> and he joined on bass for, for a while, actually, you know, not too long, but for a while. 
And I found the clip in the archives of Jimmy Page explaining his recollection of becoming a Yardbird because he happened to actually be there um, with his friend Jeff Beck. And then all of a sudden they needed a bass player and he joins. Well, they just started playing bass guitar, more or less ready to help them out because Paul Samuel Smith had decided to split from the band one night after a gig uh, and just refused point blank to do any more shows. And I happened to be there just with Jeff Beck and uh, they were in a bit of a quandary what to do, you know. And I said, well, I'll play bass. I've never played bass before. It seemed a good idea that, you know, twin lead guitars would be something to work towards. And if Chris Dreyer could take over on the bass, who's in rhythm guitar, it was worth just bridging the gap with me on bass. So that's exactly what we did. Okay, so here's part two of our conversation with David French, author of Heartful of Soul, the biography of Keith Ralph. The Yardbirds really are, next to the Beatles and Stones, the most important band to come out of Britain. Why did they miss the mark so much, as opposed to so many of the other groups? It's a complicated question. I think part of it is management. They didn't have a Brian Epstein or an Andrew Lou Goldham that was really fighting for them. Uh, they had uh, three different managers in the time in their five-year career. E- each of their managers had strengths, but none of them had uh, the kind of bigger vision. Uh, you know, Giorgio Gamelski was their manager through 1966, who really broke them and uh, did, you know, he was always coming up with madcap stunts to uh, to kind of get them uh, uh, recognition and, and, you know, did some wonderful things, booked them into Sun Studios or, or Phillips Recording Studios in Memphis and Chess Studios and really did kind of uh, see them as artists that he was trying to further their careers. But he never let them get into the studio for, he never let them get off the road long enough to to record a full album and, and really kind of neglected them as individuals and artists. So, so I think they had poor management, uh, or, or I would say flawed management. I also think, uh, they had, they were not as easy to package as the Beatles or the Stones were. They were complicated people. They were introverts and social misfits, uh, as they admitted in interviews. They, they did not like playing the game. You know, when you hear them on BBC interviews, they're, they're very quiet, sincere, uh, polite young men. Uh, they were not kind of the cheeky lads of the British invasion. And so I, 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 I would say Keith specifically really did not like playing the game of music. He was, he was kind of a depressive, introverted person. He did not like, he, he complained bitterly in interviews about, you know, the people in the music industry, the bookers and promoters and the traveling and, you know, the, he was kind of a Holden Caulfield kind of character complaining about the phonies, you know, it was, uh, so, uh, but there was, there was, there were some simple things. There's some simple things that they didn't do like play the Ed Sullivan show, which probably would have changed things dramatic dramatically for them. Yeah. And, and I don't know the story, uh, I don't know whether Giorgio tried to get them. They did a lot of television. I mean, certainly in England, they played, they were on TV, you know, in their hit making years, they were on, 
various shows multiple times a month uh, and on the BBC multiple times a month. They did Shivery and the Lloyd Faxton show and Shindig. You know, I, I think the thing about the Yardbirds is they've always been kind of a musician's band. They've, they've been like that cool, you know, if you got the Yardbirds, you were really one of the cool kids because, you know, this wasn't like your sister's band, you know. Why is it they weren't uh, really given the opportunity to, to just do an album? It seems like it was always a collection of songs or half from a live album. I mean, they only made one proper album, really. That that was short-sightedness on Giorgio Gamowski's uh, part, 100%. He, he just kept them on the road. and uh, But, you know, Jim and Paul both told me that from their viewpoint, it was a singles market, that it was only, it was, you know, 1965, 1966, that's kind of when albums started to become important. And uh, they were just, their management was just a little bit behind the, vo- uh, behind the ball on that. According to Paul and Jim, they were both kind of begging to uh, get into the studio for a block of time. And, and it just... There was always too much work on the horizon to really get it. And when they finally sacked Giorgio, the first condition they had for Simon Napier-Bell as their new manager was they wanted to get into the studio and record a full album. And they did almost immediately. They recorded Roger the Engineer. And yet with all that touring, they didn't see the money. And I think you were being gracious when you described their managers because uh, they really did not do well by them which yeah. means that they must have knowingly cheated them out of the money that they deserve. Let's be real. So they weren't seeing the money. All they did was tour. And you go as far as to write that they didn't have the personalities needed for true fame. I found that fascinating because you, the way you saw that. I, I mean, I, I think that's one of the things that really uh, came through in all the research I did that that rock and roll has largely been built on these kind of big personalities. And there were some big personalities that passed through the band, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton. And you see it in the photos of the band. You see those guys kind of have, they're looking at the camera. They have something to prove. They have something to say. And the other four really didn't have that. Um, they were, they were kind of introspective, sincere young men. And, uh, they, you know, they kind of shied away from playing the game. So how many um, people did you, how many, uh, people did you do interviews with? It would be about 30. I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I was able to speak with people from, from all the bands that Keith played with. Uh, with uh, Paul Samuel Smith and Jim McCarty from the Yardbirds. And one of the best interviews I did actually was with Top Topham, who was Anthony Top Topham was the Yardbirds' first guitarist, lead guitarist, before Eric Clapton. He was 15 years old at the time. You know, what's so interesting to me is that with Top as lead guitarist, they became, they got within six months, went from starting to the band to having a residency at the Crawdaddy Club and uh, having secured Giorgio Gamelski as their manager. So, 
you know, I think there's been so much focus over the years on the guitarists as if the guitarists made the band. But uh, I thought that was such an interesting proof that, you know, they really, the Yardbirds were a great band and they kind of created this platform that all these guitarists could shine in. Um, and they did that before these, uh, these bigger names or, or to be bigger names joined the band. They took over for the Stones uh, when the Stones went on tour for that gig, correct? And that was like that was a turning point. Yeah, the Giorgio Gamelski had been managing the Rolling Stones without a contract, uh, and when his father died, he went uh, back to Switzerland for the funeral, and Andrew Lou Goldham kind of talked them out of Gamelski's shop into his. And so Gamelski asked Hamish Grimes, uh, who was his uh, kind of assistant, to find a new band. And Hamish went out uh, and, and looked at the Yardbirds and them, Van Morrison's band, uh, and kind of weighed them both and thought the Yardbirds would be a better band for the Crawdaddy Club and invited them to join. Very quickly, Gamelski, having learned his lesson, signed them to a contract, and that was the start of their career as professional musicians just uh, six months after they started the group. How did they get to Peter Grant, who is, uh, you know, most known as being the manager of Led Zeppelin and you know, the amazing stories about his life and everything? But how did they get to Peter Grant? The Yardbirds, uh, you know, signed with Simon Napier Bell in early 1966. And, was, you know, within six months, it was clear to both sides that it wasn't going to work out. Uh, Simon wanted out, certainly once Jimmy Page joined the band, who was his probably more savvy than the other members of the band uh, from a business perspective and started asking questions, it became clear that uh, the relationship was not long-lived. And I, my understanding is Simon Napier-Bell essentially signed over management to Peter Grant. Peter Grant and Mickey Most, uh, the producer, uh, had, a, had a working relationship. And at that time... Jimmy uh, Page, as a studio musician, had done a fair amount of work with Mickey Most on the Donovan sides and uh, Animal sides and others. So according to Jim McCarty, it was really Jimmy Page's idea that they sign on and work with Mickey Most as a producer. And that was kind of a package deal going with Peter and Mickey together. My sense from talking to the band is that they liked Peter Grant as a manager a lot. He really kind of looked out for the band in a way that Simon and Giorgio had not, uh, but that going with Mickey Most as a producer was a terrible mistake that really, uh, that really kind of wiped out their evolution uh, as a recording band. Mm. Wow. Well, Denny and I, uh, Val to put a Led Zeppelin story in just about every one of our episodes. So I thought it would be great if we talked a little bit about Jake Holmes and Dazed and Confused. Yardbirds were performing it first. Yeah, uh, I think it was the Village Theater. Uh, the Yardbirds were on a bill with Jake Holmes. Jake was the opening act. And uh, Jim McCarty recounts very clearly standing backstage watching him play this song with a descending bass line and thinking, you know, that's a good song. 
and immediately after the show, he went out to a record store in Greenwich Village and bought the album. On the same day, Jimmy Page also bought the album. They, it had caught both of their ears. And I think my, I, I think Jimmy Jimmy Page basically worked out the arrangement for that. I think that was really when he was kind of coming into his own as an influence on the band, having started out as kind of the new kid who was just doing uh, what the band wanted. I think that was really a sign of his moving the group in the direction he was interested in going. Jake Holmes uh, had an amazing career. He was he ended up being well, not ended up, but he then went on to be a jingle writer. That's right. He wrote that army jingle, <laughs> yeah. that you can be. And then this blew my mind because I'm mired in the minutia of this stuff. So this was like I thought about this all night. That along with Randy Newman, and I'm sure a lot of people know this, but I didn't. Uh, that they wrote the "I'm a Pepper" jingle uh, for Dr. Pepper, yeah. at which. I mean, come on. That, that's it. That, that's, right? Now, now, I'll give you a piece of trivia, and maybe I don't even know if you know this, but you're probably the only person I could ask. Did you know that Jake Holmes was in a comedy group before he was, a, was in a musical group? <laughs> With Joan Rivers. With Joan Rivers. Yes. Wow. I did not know that. Oh, well, I thought he was the porno star when I first heard the name, and I was like, that would have been a real varied career, you know, to start with the jingle, I'm a pepper, and, well, anyway. Well, that's an easy mistake to make, right? John Holmes, Jake Holmes. <laughs> By the way, uh, Jake is 81 years old now, and uh, he recently recorded... Uh, his version of Dazed and Confused, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, uh, I know you have something uh, from Jim McCarty. Yeah, he's, he actually explains the whole thing we just talked about. Um, so I, I thought, you know, as long as we have it in his own words, let's hear him talk about it. We were playing in 1968. Uh, we had the four piece, uh, Jimmy, Keith, Chris and myself, although we were working well together as a live band, we were very short on material and uh, we couldn't really produce another shapes of things. We, you know, we were always under pressure to get, you know, to get another single all the time. And then um, we were playing a theatre in, in New York and we were playing with this guy, Jake Holmes. He was, he was the warm-up band and they were like a sort of folk band. And uh, I was standing at the side of the stage watching and he was playing these sort of pokey things and all of a sudden they he went into this dazed and confused riff you know doom doom playing with two folk guitars and i thought hey this is a good riff this is sort of thing we need you know the next day i went down to greenwich village went in one of the record shops i said oh you know can i have the jake holmes record and we we worked out our version of the song and then the next thing we knew after we'd broken up it was a big zeppelin song they'd recorded it there's a version of Days to Confused on the above ground sound of Jake Holmes. And there's also a version, uh, a recent version. So uh, we'll let you hear it for yourself. Well, I'm dazed and confused. Does it stay as it go? Am I being used? I'd just like to know. Give me a clue as to where I am at. I feel like a mouse and you act like a So not surprisingly, Jake filed a lawsuit against Jimmy Page in 2010 for copyright infringement. And on the 2012 release of Celebration Day, which was Led Zepp's reunion show at the O2, the credits for Dazed say 
as written by Jimmy Page, inspired by Jake Holmes, but no songwriting credits uh, on that or on any of the re-releases. And uh, I was reading a comment online and somebody wrote, this is my favorite Jimmy shoplifting. (laughs) (laughs) Here's part three of our interview with David French. Before we go any further, can you just settle the origin of the band's name story? Uh, Being a jazz person myself, not like you, but loving jazz, I'm hoping it's the Charlie Parker version. Well, that's my understanding because... Uh, Keith, in an interview, said it was from a rather obscure LP. So I'm assuming that was a, 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 some kind of English pressing of a Charlie Yardbird Parker LP. However, he also said that the word, you know, described the, the kind of characters that hung around the train yards. So he was, you know, Keith was also a big Jack Kerouac fan, so... Whether or not that resonated for him, uh, but I think it came from Charlie Parker, and he uh, he appreciated. Keith was very much a bohemian. He loved uh, he loved um, Kennery Row, John Steinbeck, and the stories of these kind of dissolute, uh, uh, lovable uh, bohemian characters. So I think that resonance was very meaningful for Keith. That's what's so great about your book: all the pieces of the puzzle come together. And then there's that left field, you know, you're reading it and you know the story, but you're thinking, well, he, Keith must have succumbed to all of these problems that he had, you know, the emphysema that, you know, and then no, that, that's, it can, that's one level of tragic, but this, his demise is just a whole nother level. If you shop this around in Hollywood, they would say nobody would believe this ending. Obviously you see where he's going. He dies in his sleep of, you know, not being able to breathe. No, no, no. So can you describe uh, how he ends up being electrocuted and dies that way? Yeah. uh, You know, uh, Keith had, uh, a home studio. He had, uh, you know, a TX tape deck and an early Moog with all the patches and everything. Guitar, and I think you know Keith's dad had been an electrician. I, I assume he must have felt he had a kind of degree of comfort working with wiring, uh, because a couple of people described to me, you know, if he didn't have a full plug, he'd kind of stick wires into the sockets with matchsticks to hold them in place. Uh, and of course in England there, you know, it's two thirty current. So it's, it will kill you much more easily than, uh, or, or one ten or one twenty, whatever it is here. So England, uh, you know, Keith was working in his home studio, went home, uh, had a drink with Jim McCarty at the pub a block from his house and went home and was tinkering and, uh, received an electric shock. He was, he was plugged into his, uh, guitar, had his guitar around his neck and, uh, you know, got a jolt. If he'd been a stronger person physically, maybe he would have lived, but you know, he was, he was really suffering, uh, physically at that point already. Um, he'd just been in the hospital for, uh, either months or weeks, uh, and was was not going to live long uh one way or another, but that was really a 
a hasty and tragic way to go. Did you, uh, have you seen the current version of the Yardbirds? I have, uh, and they put on a great show. They do, don't they? They really do. And it's, it's, it's fascinating for me. I've seen them a couple of times now. Uh, you know, Jim, I love Jim McCarty. He's just kept the flame yeah. of the Yardbirds alive, uh, for 50 years now. And he gets great musicians and he goes out and plays the songs. And you know what? They're great songs and they, they, they really do a good job. And it's so interesting to me to see the audience and meet people in the audience because almost everybody that I've met at a Yardbird show saw the band in 68, 66 or 67 or 68 and has very vivid memories of, you know, just getting out of the army and seeing this band and, uh, um, I, I hope they are back on the road soon. Heart full of soul. It's the story of Keith Ralph and, of course, the Yardbirds. Uh, and it's available. You can get it online, Amazon, everywhere else. Uh, I want to thank you very much for coming by. Thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I, I can always talk about the Yardbirds. It's never a, <laughs> never a problem. I want to thank David French for coming on because uh, it was great. I mean, there had never been a book. He was the only guy pretty much in the band that didn't have a book on him, but it was good to to get some insight from uh, someone who did all that uh, research and everything. By the way, Anita, I don't know if you had a chance. I've seen the reformed Yardbirds three or four times already. Did you have a chance to see him? No, I would love to. I think everybody should try to get out there once we can and see these uh, guys live, especially after you said you thought they did a great job. So it's not just a tribute band. It's no. And uh, just so you know, uh, I think it was uh, the, about five years ago, they actually got top top ham back in the band for a little while. So they had, when Chris Drea became ill and couldn't continue, they felt they had to have two yard birds to make it real. So they brought top in, uh, but Jim McCarty has been handling everything. And uh, I think he's got a, an autobiography that he just released. So we'll try and get him on a, on a future show. And like I said earlier, we'll do a more complete uh, thing on the Yardbirds because they are a, a very critical band in this uh, whole thing. So I think that's going to pretty much do it for us. Anita, anything else you want to add? No, just thanks always for listening and all the nice comments. And uh, we're here for you. Hit us up. I want to thank David French, author of Heart Full of Soul available everywhere right now. It's always great when you can have someone like uh, an author who's done extensive research because you really get a, a good sense of what's going on. Anyway, for now, toodaloo. Bye. 